Well, it is so great to see all of you, and uh, third graders, I'm proud of you. It's been a great day, and I know um, some of you may be a little exhausted. Some of you might have stayed up late last night watching, I don't know, Stanford beat Notre Dame or some other game. We've been in a series called Redeeming the Church, and just to get this out there from the start, as we make our way through 1 Corinthians, uh, we come today to one of the most vexing texts in the New Testament. In fact, Allie and I were having dinner earlier this week, and I was just kind of venting about this whole having to preach on this text on third grade Bible Sunday, all these kids that are going to be in the sanctuary and baptism families, and maybe I should just punt and go for something a little bit more lighthearted, Psalm 23, something like that, and If you know my wife, she's very empathetic, great listener, and just kind of leans in, and she's processing with me, and and then she says to me, no, you can't just pick and choose what you're going to preach, like the easy stuff, and I was like, well, thank you for not giving me the answer that I was hoping for, uh, darling. So this is one of those sermons that's going to be a little less happy-clappy and a little bit more, I don't know, serious. So if you want to just slip out discreetly, like I totally get it, I won't take it personally. God might, but I will not. Um, Our text is 1 Corinthians 11, and it has to do with, are men and women equal in the eyes of God? This is from a book of letters that children wrote to God. One of the girls wrote, dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. Another girl wrote, dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but please try to be fair. And as we're about to see, it's not just kids who who wrestle with this. Now, before I read this passage, let me offer just a few quick preliminary thoughts, mostly having to do with how do we read the Bible, especially when it comes to difficult texts. So first of all, we have to be willing to let the Bible speak on its own terms. What do I mean by that? Well, the goal of reading the Bible is not to get the Bible to say what I want it to say. So if I have certain views about men and women or marriage or culture or politics, I'm not allowed to just read the Bible in such a way or to pick certain passages that seem to support my pre-held views, okay? Here's another guiding principle and one that I've shared before, that while the Bible is written for us, it was not written to us. If we want to understand what it means, we have to first understand what it meant to the people to whom it was first written. And that while the Bible is always true and it can speak to anyone, a third grader of any age, it was written to a specific people at specific moments in history. And as we're about to see, there is a massive gap between the world of first century Corinth and our world today. Another helpful point, when we ask questions of the Bible, we don't have to doubt its authority. In fact, I think we're taking scripture more seriously. Like, we better use the very best of our minds to try and figure this out because the inspired word of God deserves no less. Amen? We're not doubting the Bible's authority when we ask even really hard questions about what it says. Now, one other thing before we jump into this passage, and it's something I often say to our new members at Starting Point, we are followers of Jesus first and everything else second. In other words, if we have Jesus in common, then what we have in common is far greater than anything that could ever divide us. And I say that because people who love Jesus and take the Bible seriously disagree on what we're about to look at. So I'm going to read this passage for us. It's a little lengthy. 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll start with verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because... You remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, 
The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaved. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Everybody crystal clear so far? Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for an offering if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, let's pray, and then you're dismissed. <laughs> Obviously, Paul is speaking into a specific cultural moment a long time ago. Even so, at first glance, it almost looks like what he's saying, what he's laying out is a top-down hierarchy, right? Verse 3, the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. At face value, it's like the husband is the head of the wife, and so the wife is to be subordinate to her husband. And one way that can play out in a marriage is that a husband says, look, you got to do what I say, because I'm the head. I'm in charge. And taken to the extreme, this can lead to a world where women are subjugated, silenced, and treated as second class, which was certainly the situation in first century Corinth. Women were seen as inferior at best, and the property of their husband's or masters at worst. And so the philosopher Socrates, or Socrates, if you're a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure fan, he said that being born a woman was divine punishment because a woman was halfway between a man and an animal. Aristotle, yeah, seriously. Aristotle once said, the philosopher Aristotle once noticed how a swarm of bees was led by one particular bee, and so he concluded that that bee had to be a king bee. Because by nature, only males were fit to lead. And just to be clear, it was not a king bee. It wasn't much better among the Jewish community either, where an adult Jewish male might include in his daily prayers, God, I thank you that thou didst not make me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. So is that what we're dealing with here, with the Apostle Paul? Is this just one more glimpse into his misogyny? Well, let's look, let's begin by looking at verse 3 with this phrase, the head of a wife is her husband. What's up with that? Well, there were two Greek words to choose from here, and the word Paul chose was kephale, literally the part of the body connected to the neck. Nowhere in ancient literature does kephale mean boss, ruler, or commander. There was a very specific word in Greek for that kind of head or ruler, and that is archon. And nowhere does Paul ever say the husband is the archon of the wife. He is her kephale. Now, kephale can also mean source, like the headwaters of a river. And if that's the case, then what Paul is saying 
is that in Jesus' incarnation, he came from God, and Adam was created by Christ, and the woman, if you remember the creation story of Genesis 2, came out of the side or the rib of man. It was her source. He was her source. Now, sometimes when people argue about this, they say, because in Genesis 2, it says that the man was made first, and the woman came from his side and was made second, that means the man is superior. He came first, and first is best to paraphrase the great Ricky Bobby. Well, here's the problem with that argument, and I get this from my uh, pastor in college. In Genesis 1, the first account of creation, God made the animals first, and then eventually he got around to making the man. So does that make animals better than man? Because if it doesn't, and the man was actually a big improvement over the animals, well, maybe God was like, I'm just getting warmed up here, and then eventually he got around to making his greatest creation, which was Eve. Like he saved the best for last. So the argument goes both ways. First does not mean you're best or you're the boss. Otherwise, we'd all be subordinate to cats. And I just couldn't handle a world in which that was the case. <laughs> but what about the rest of this passage? And what about this whole business of head coverings? Scholars have been baffled by this for centuries. Some commentators believe that Paul wanted women to cover their heads for cultural reasons, that what mattered most to Paul was reaching as many people with the good news of Jesus. And so if people outside the church were looking into the church and they saw that women were abandoning an important cultural norm, they would be uninterested in what God was doing in the church. Other scholars have implied that in their newfound freedom in Christ, some women in Corinth were protesting by dropping their head coverings, which as an aside, maybe you've seen the images of this in recent weeks in Iran. As women protest by laying down or even burning their head coverings to protest against the oppression of Islamic law. Is that what's going on in Corinth? Now, I want to be upfront about this. There is no one consensus way of reading this text that even the greatest Pauline scholars agree on. There just isn't. But that doesn't mean we can dismiss it or just tear it out of our Bibles. Now, some would say we need to simply go with a plain reading of the text. We just got to do what it says. The problem with that is I don't know anyone or any church, at least around here, that thinks women should cover their heads when they walk into the sanctuary. Another problem with a plain reading of the text is that Paul seems to contradict himself. Like he says one thing and then goes in the opposite direction. In verse 5, he seems to say that women should cover their heads Otherwise, they're being dishonoring. But then when you get to verse 15, he seems to say something else. For long hair is given to her as a covering. Now, one way of reading this is, why are you making the women cover their heads when they have long hair for that? And not to get too technical here, but the Greek word Paul uses is not as a covering, but instead of, in place of. Of. Her long hair is given to her instead of a covering. So if you want to go with a plain reading of the text, what he seems to be saying is, she doesn't need a head covering at all. She's got long hair. Is anyone confused yet? Well, then what about this business of hair length in verse 14? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? Well, here's another problem. If Paul really believed this, then why did he have long hair? And we know that Paul had long hair in Corinth because in Acts 18, verse 18, we're told that Paul cut his long hair 
after he left Corinth. And if you really want to geek out on this, scholars believe that Paul took a vow when he arrived in Corinth, which meant he only cut his hair after he left. Does anyone remember how long Paul was in Corinth? 18 months. Well, what does a guy look like who's grown his hair out for 18 months? <laughs> this guy, right? Minus the business in the front part of said mullet, okay? It's hard to imagine Paul as a Jewish man who as a custom wore his hair long, really believing that long hair on a man was a disgrace, especially after rocking said long hair in Corinth for the entirety of his ministry. So is everyone clear as mud at this point? All that to say, there is no easy button, simple, plain reading of this text. And so when we come to a challenging passage like this, we need to read it in light of the rest of God's word. How do we reconcile what Paul is saying here with, for example, Genesis 1, where God created male and female in his image? Or in the Gospels, where Jesus treats women with such dignity and he invites them to even be his disciples, or even in light of Paul's empowering of women in his leadership of the early church? Well, for starters, we can at least begin with the baseline that the Apostle Paul clearly assumed and thinks women should be engaged in public ministry. Verse 5, he assumes that women are praying and prophesying in the church. And to prophesy in that context meant to teach, to bring God's message to the people, to a congregation in which women and men were present. Otherwise, this whole argument about head coverings wouldn't be necessary. So just let that sink in for a moment. It is hard to overstate what a radical departure this was from Jewish tradition. One where there were ancient rabbinic sayings like this, better the Torah should be burned than taught to a woman. And now you have Paul trained in that rabbinic tradition saying, you know what, we're not just going to let, we're not just going to teach the women, we're going to let them teach. And we see this in the early church where more than half the household church gatherings were led by women. Then Paul takes it up a notch. In verse 11, it's a key verse. Uh, Paul begins with this word, nevertheless. Okay, that symbols a kind of pivot. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman. Again, think about the men in Corinth who have been taught in every area of Roman and Jewish life. They are superior. They have ownership. They control the women in their lives. And so when Paul comes around to saying a woman is not independent of man, they're like, yeah, we know that, of course. But then he has the audacity to say to them, oh, and just by the way, nor is man independent of woman. Wait, what? It's like Paul is saying this is a new day where men and women have a new status in Christ in which they are no longer independent but interdependent. There is a mutuality in their interdependence. Again, he takes us back to creation. He says just because the woman comes from the side of the man in Genesis 2, don't you forget Corinthians, there's not a man alive who hasn't been born of a woman, including Jesus himself. So stop arguing about who owes their existence to whom, who came first. Men and women owe their existence to each other. They are interdependent and they're on equal and mutual footing before God. Well, then at the very end, Paul says this. 
If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, and nor do the churches of God. Now, the big question here is, what is the practice he's referring to? Is it the practice of being contentious? Like, stop fighting with each other. None of the other churches ever fight with themselves about anything. So stop doing that. Okay, that's one reading. Or is the practice the one that has been the subject of this entire passage? Forcing women to wear head coverings. So that what Paul might be saying at the end of this text is, guys, none of the other churches are asking women to cover their heads as they pray and teach and minister. They're not asking them to do it, so why should you? Now follow with me here for just a moment. What if Paul is actually commending the church in Corinth, and in particular the men, to let go of this practice of making women cover their heads? And I'm, I'm indebted here to a New Testament theologian, Lucy Pepiat. She says, the one thing almost all readers have assumed whenever we come to 1 Corinthians 11 is that the problem is the women. They're doing something wrong, and Paul has to rebuke them. I, I've always assumed this. However, as we've seen in the first nine weeks of this series, everyone agrees that when it comes to 1 Corinthians as a whole, the main problem in Corinth was the men, divisive, domineering, arrogant men who were mostly concerned about their honor and status in the eyes of others. So just follow with me for a moment. What if in this text, instead of some rebellious women who were causing all the trouble, what if the problem, just as it has been for the lion's share of 1 Corinthians up to this point, was still a group of domineering, divisive, status-obsessed men? And what if the male leadership who had taken charge of the church after Paul left town had decided that Paul had given women way too much freedom when he was with them? And so after he left, they decided that the women needed to learn their place again. And what if they felt threatened by women who were playing an equal role in leadership? Like, who do they think they are? And what if Paul is trying to show them and he's writing to them that there is a better way? And so he says, you want to talk about headship? Great. And men, do you know what that means? Back in verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ, the head of the church. And what did the head of the church do? How did he lead? He sacrificed and humbled himself and laid down his life for others. Now you go do the same. So wherever we land around the cultural practice of veils and head coverings, Paul's greater vision for the church in Corinth and 2,000 years later for this church today is that Jesus is building a new family where women share together the authority of divine image bearers and they have gifts that build up the church. And if we don't allow women to use these gifts, as we're going to see next week in chapter 12, when people aren't empowered to use the gifts that God has given them, the whole body suffers. So, if you are a woman and you're a follower of Jesus, we need you. This church needs you. The world needs you and needs your passion for Jesus and needs you to use your gifts that God has given you to lead and teach and pastor and serve. And so on this Sunday where we pray over and we bless and we give our third graders their own Bibles to study and to mark up and to uh, to take faith in Jesus and make it their own 
personal experience and to ask questions and to discover their gifts. Let's be a community that teaches our children and our adults and teaches our sons and our daughters that God made women and men equally to serve in their giftedness with courage and faith, with wisdom and joy, and to love one another with dignity and humility. And as we do that, let's lift up and keep praying for and supporting our ministry partners who are doing this very thing around the world, raising up the dignity of women from right here in our city, a ministry like Redeemed Women that's meeting women where they are and helping to raise them out of generational poverty in South Dallas so they can lead and transform their families and their neighborhoods. Or a ministry called Brave Love, which seeks to honor and care for and celebrate birth moms for that brave and loving decision to choose life even when they cannot raise that child on their own or International Justice Mission and their ongoing heroic work to rescue women and little girls who are trapped in human trafficking around the world, for our Iranian mission partners who are raising up the next generation of leaders for the church in Iran, one of the fastest growing churches in the world, many of those followers of Jesus who happen to be women who've only known oppression and shame and silence. Let's pray for them and support them and come alongside them and learn from them. In fact, let's pray right now. Would you join me? And so we come before you, Father, and we thank you that you created male and female in your image. And when we botch that up and we get mixed up and we use our power to hurt people and to deny their God-given image-bearing beauty and dignity, Lord, forgive us and lead us in a better way with your son, Jesus. We pray, God, that this would be a church where women and men and girls and boys learn to use their gifts which you gave them to build up the body of Christ. And we pray this together in your name, Jesus. Amen.